Hi, this is Freddie from Unheard. We've been doing a series of interviews on YouTube called Lockdown TV, and due to popular demand, we are now making them available as podcasts. So this is the podcast version of the latest Lockdown TV episode with Ross Doutat. Hi, and welcome. This is Lockdown TV brought to you by Unheard. Um, we have, throughout this weird lockdown period, been talking to scientists and thinkers and political people and anyone who can kind of broaden our perspective and help us understand what's really going on in the world. Um, and I'm delighted that we are joined from the US right now by Ross Douthat. Ross is the, I guess, the, con the principal conservative commentator on the pages of the New York Times. Can we call you that along with David Brooks, perhaps? And Brett Stevens, one, one of several. It's a, it's a small but lively church. Uh, and also author of a, a fabulous new book that I have just finished. Um, in fact, I have it here called uh, The Decadent Society, uh, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Um, so, so many things that I'd love to talk about in this precious time we have. Let's start by just sharing with viewers what you mean by the decadent society. It's a vision that I it sort of it resonated with me and I, I, I felt sympathy for it. Um, it feels like you feel the, the world has kind of reached a, almost a dead end. It's run out of creative fizz in, a, in all sorts of realms. How would you summarize that? So I would say that it's a book about how since, basically since the 1970s, though I started with the moon landing um, for, for effect in certain ways, uh, what we think of as the developed world, Western Europe, the UK, the US, to some extent, the Pacific Rim, has entered into a period of stagnation, drift, and repetition, basically. Um, and that means economic deceleration. Um, growth hasn't disappeared, but it's much slower than it was before. Um, a certain amount of technological disappointment. We've had incredible breakthroughs uh, in communications technology and simulation technology, but energy, transportation, space travel, all kinds of fields that people were optimistic about uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, we've had fewer breakthroughs than people anticipated. And then Western societies have gotten older. They have fewer and fewer babies. Um, they have, you know, sort of demographically older and older profiles, um, which in turn feeds into, I think, both political sclerosis, this sense of sort of stalemate and gridlock and inability to change anything, um, and a certain kind of cultural repetition, which I sort of puckishly uh, link to, you know, the Marvel superhero movies and the recycling of Star Wars movies, but I think extends beyond just Hollywood to encompass political and intellectual debates as well. Um, so the book is sort of trying to push back against both deep pessimism, the people who think that the Western world's about to collapse under the weight of plutocracy or climate change or wanton immorality, um, but also against the sort of hyper-optimists, the Steven Pinkers, who argue that things have never been better and they're just going to keep getting better still unless we mess it up somehow. I found it, I guess, uh, quite depressing in, in the sense that uh, for even the kind of... Uh, sort of calamitous reading of today's moment, which is, you know, we had that moment where we thought the history was over and now suddenly history has started again and all its dark forces and we're back. Actually, the, the picture you paint is that all the kind of ructions of today are actually symptoms of a something possibly more sinister, which is a kind of a boredom, an end of days atmosphere, which actually, it's almost worse than history being back. 
there are advantages to sort of boredom and repetition as opposed to having hundreds of thousands of people die from a deadly disease, right? So it, it's important throughout the kind of pessimistic aspects of my story to recognize that complaining about decadence is also kind of a luxury good, right? You only get to complain about decadence when, um, you know, the, the planes are actually running on time and the political system is, you know, seems like a mess, but it's also holding together and GDP hasn't collapsed and so on. So that's, that's the, my, the only pushback I'd offer against the totally negative portrayal. But, but yes, I mean, I think, I think that is a sense in which, um, you know, if you look at things like the rise of populism or the revival of socialism and so on, there are often people reaching back to a more youthful and dynamic phase of Western history and trying to sort of recover, recover lost political traditions, but they often end up just sort of recyclings that, that don't actually take us anywhere, I think. I think that's certainly been true of a lot of populism. I'm sympathetic to a lot of the sort of broad populist critique of the Western establishment. Um, but I think as it manifests itself in actual governance, populism doesn't really know what it wants to do with power. It knows that it's unhappy with how the world has turned out, but it doesn't exactly know how to reshape it. And yet, when you were talking earlier there about, you know, well, the planes are running on time, people aren't starving, therefore it's a luxury problem to complain about kind of spiritual decadence. I, I, I felt I wanted to defend you from your own charge there because, and actually that's, the, those are the arguments that have kind of kept people in their place for, for decades, it feels like. These are luxury problems to have, whilst surely the kind of creative agency, ability to, to make something of your environment or you know, have a sense of purpose in your life, these aren't luxuries. They are fundamental to what it means to have a good society. Yes, no, I, I obviously absolutely agree. And I think the problem with the sort of, there's a weak case for decadence and a strong case. And the weak case is the one I just offered you that, um, you know, you don't want to invite turmoil, plague, pandemic and revolution just to get out of a period of sort of malaise and torpor. And I, I agree with that. The stronger case that this is actually a good place for society to end up um, that you know, it's it's a good thing that the world has sort of developed to this point, and we can just sort of stop, right, and sort of um, maintain things as they are, and going forward, I think is completely wrong because I think you do get a kind of not a sort of immediate crisis, but a kind of dystopian drift in a society that isn't having those kind of fundamental arguments or can't figure out what, even what the fundamental arguments should be, and you see that I think in you know, the, the sort of loss of human goods over time, the declining birth rate, the sort of retreat into sort of virtual entertainments and so on. Um, and so in, in that sense, yes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously against decadence in the long run. Um, I'm just trying to, as we say, as we say in the States these days, recognize my own privilege <laughs> as I'm right. doing it. Well, that, that kind of leads me nicely into, um, one of the kind of specific things that are happening around the world that I'd like to get your take on in the context of this view, um, and that is these protests that are um, dominating uh, America and now also Europe. In a sense, they kind of go against your argument for, for a decadent West because they feel full of purpose or full of feeling, um, and it looks sort of like history in the making in some sense, but it also feels very reminiscent. How do you... How do you situate those protests in the context of the, the decadent society? I mean, I think in part they do represent no less than sort of 
populist and socialist eruptions, a kind of revolt against decadence, right? And one of the arguments I make in the book is that is that virtual politics um, is a very poor substitute for real politics, real political action and engagement. So the more people sort of take their political action onto Facebook or Twitter, you know, sort of into a world of liking and dragging and getting outraged by things you see on your screen, the less plausible real political change becomes. I think that's been a big story in Western politics as the internet has sort of come to dominate political engagement. And so in that sense, getting into the streets, actually protesting in the flesh, um, sort of putting your bodies on the line, confronting policemen um, and um, sort of agitating directly for change is undecadent, definitely. Mm -hmm. And it is sort of a hint of sort of history creeping back into the story. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's it's too soon to tell how this ends up, but it's perfectly possible to imagine a future where we look back and say that this was a kind of it was a kind of reenactment, basically, of um, 1968, of sort of, you know, sort of 60s-style protests with ultimately lower stakes. Not that police brutality isn't a terrible thing, but it's a very different kind of battle than the battle over segregation or apartheid in South Africa. I think you can also make a real distinction between the European protests and the American protests. Um, you know, I, I cycled through Hyde Park earlier and saw the, these protests, and, you know, it's a very different atmosphere. Um, yes. No, I think the, Euro the European protests, I mean, obviously there are incidents of police brutality in the UK and the European continent, but there yeah. isn't anything, yeah, there isn't anything like the same. Um, I mean, the US is just a much more violent and hev heavily policed country, and therefore... Which, fit, which, which fits, situates actually the European event more closely in your kind of context, because... Yes. You know, it feels like it's it's people more in search of an ideal and, and wanting to do something virtuous and wanting to be part of history and wanting to feel deeply um, and gathering. And, you know, I saw a picture earlier of a street in Oxford, which is, you know, one of the kind of whitest, most secular middle class places in England, um, all taking the knee. Even the, the action itself feels religious. You know, do, right. do you think there's truth to that? Yes, I mean, I, I think, and here too, there's sort of uncertainty about where it goes, but I think there's certainly a sense in which this kind of protest culture and sort of anti-racism as an ideology is a kind of, you know, it fills some of the religious void for people in the Western world. And it comes, I mean, anti-racism obviously has deep Christian roots and many of the sort of saints and iconic figures of anti-racism um, were Christian ministers and Christian figures from, you know, William Wilberforce down to Martin Luther King. But today, it is a more secular movement that sort of then tends in a religious direction. You can imagine, I, I think, a future where this actually, you know, we see this as a genuine religious awakening and a kind of, a kind of genuine religious culture is built out of these religious impulses. I think, though, that that's less likely than a world where this is sort of an example of religious energy that doesn't know where to go, right? That you, you know, you can sort of, you can, it can sort of manifest itself in these moments of protest and this kind of the self-scrutiny involved in checking your privilege and examining your whiteness and so on, but it never actually coheres into something with the robustness of an actual, you know, the Christianity that, that used to, used to fill that role. I mean, talking about this kind of yearning for spirituality or for something to believe in 
You then look at the picture of the two most recent American presidents, Barack Obama, who in one sense was the preacher president and gave people a kind of an ideology to believe in. And then Trump, who had was a much more kind of, you know, sort of destructive creativity, I suppose, if one wants to be uh, kind of optimistic. Yes. Um, you know, but it was a sort of, you know, well, the, that one didn't, that type didn't work. So, you know, let's try something else. Um, could, do you think you can see them as two sides of the same yearning? Ye up to a point. I mean, I think what's interesting about Obama is that there's a big difference between the Obama of 2008 and the Obama who was actually president. Um, so that Obama 2008 ran on reenchantment. He ran on not not fully religious reenchantment, but he ran on a sort of return of ambition, return of liberal ambition, return of sort of a somewhat undefined but real political utopianism with a kind of spiritual element woven in. So if you go back and look at the videos of the celebrities singing about Obama, you know the the atmosphere around his rhetoric, his trips overseas and so on. Um, that was all palpable and present, but that actually wasn't Obama's personality, right? He was a really good orator, but a lot of the atmospherics were things that other people built up around him. And as president, he was a technocrat, like fundamentally that, that, and you know, he, he wanted to, um, he wanted to sort of be a policy wonk who was, um, you know, sort of working, working within the lines of, of policy briefs and so on. And at a certain point, the left got very tired of that, I think. And what we think of, what in the States we call the Great Awakening, um, this sort of turn to the left among younger liberals on a host of social, social issues above all, um, I think comes out of this disappointment with Obama, the sense that he had come in as a kind of messianic figure and had governed as a as a compromiser, as someone who was managing decadence, if you to put it in the language of my book. Mm -hmm. um, so that and, and that and then the left, the left that comes out of that is, again, it's actually not strong enough to run the Democratic Party. Right. You saw in the last Democratic primary that the wokest candidates did not actually win, nor did the socialists in the end. It was Joe Biden who is. Uh, certainly the candidate of sustainable decadence, given his sort of age and... Um, I thought you, you, you made the case for him in a column, didn't you, Biden? I did. I think, I think that in the end, the fact that the Democrats couldn't find someone to figure out what the transformed party, who could lead the sort of transformed party, meant that Biden was, you know, for the goal of beating Trump, the reasonable choice. But he's the reasonable choice in the way that I was talking earlier about decadence being defensible, right? Sometimes you want to accept decadence if, the, if you don't have a clear alternative. But he's still, you know, a decrepit, a figure of sort of liberal decrepitude. He's literally been a senator for 50 years. Yes. Uh, yes. He looks like sort of sclerosis. Um, yes, given, given form and flesh, yes. Um, Trump is, yeah, he's, a, he's a, different kind of, a different kind of rebel, but he contains... He contains this real duality where, on the one hand, he is a right wing rebel against decadence going around the country saying we're going to bring jobs back, you know, going to every hollowed out industrial town and saying, you know, the way things have been for 30 years, they don't have to be that way. And, and you know, make America great again is itself a statement that sort of we lost our way somewhere, but we can get back to the America of Trump's youth. But then he's obviously decadent himself, right, in all kinds of ways. And, you know, ultimately, I, I think ultimately 
his decadence is most manifest in sort of incompetence and absurdity rather than sinister fascism, which is a, that's a debate that's been we've been having. I just I would add that this sort of sense of being out of time. You know, he looks he is a character from the 1980s. He looks like a character from the 1980s. Yes. Him versus Joe Biden could have happened in the 1980s. Yes. No. And all of Trump's worldview, to the extent that that any of it is timely, it's a case of ideas that he sort of formed 40 years ago happening to come round, right? So his idea of, you know, trade wars and foreign countries taking advantage of the US and needing better relations with the Soviet Union, which is, it's not the Soviet Union anymore, but he still, he still has all those views and they've just sort of calcified, but they just happen to be timely in a way because of the crack up of the establishment. So where do you place your um, hopes and dreams in that case, you know, to, to, to get us out of this, this moment? I mean, you sometimes talk about these sort of post-liberal ideas. Should we be excited about Josh Hawley and uh, the sort of new Marco Rubio corner of things? Or should we be um, looking at kind of young, vigorous technocrats? Or where where is, is there hope in the political scene? I mean, I don't, I don't know if there is actually hope. Um, you know, I, I believe in decadence, remember, so maybe there isn't hope. But, you know, the, the people who, the conservative politicians whose politics I'm closest to right now are probably um, Hawley and Rubio and strangely Mitt Romney, who in his reincarnation as a Republican senator has been very anti-Trump, but also sort of pro-populist on economics in interesting ways. I think the basic perspective that they have um, that, you know, the the age of just conservatives just being for tax cuts, um, uh, that 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 era has run its course. And, you know, you need a more effective government than than conservatives have sometimes tended to support an American conservatism that had a more pro-family economic policy, um, I think would be a good thing. So that's, I mean, that's where I am in my politics. But yeah. I try not to, I don't deceive myself that this is going to carry either. I mean, I think it's totally possible that you end up with a Republican future where a figure like Nikki Haley, who's sort of the embodiment of this, you know, old consensus where capital gains tax cuts are the response to everything, faces off against Donald Trump Jr., the embodiment of sort of celebrity populism, yeah. right? That, that, I, I can totally imagine that future. Um, I, what about, let me, let me try and give you some hope here then. Something that we've kind of noticed is the, the echoes between that corner of the conservative movement and the kind of very left parts of the, the progressive movement. Um, they, they, you know, it's sort of almost the crunchy cons idea from 15 years mm -hmm. ago, sort of updated where, you know, in the kind of climate movement, for example, where you have this vision of a kind of pastoral, um, wholesome world, which is sort of where all, all of the ugliness of the what the age of commerce has kind of receded away, you know, would be popular on both of those wings. And there's a, there are sort of echoes. I wonder if there's, a, if there's a breakthrough moment. Maybe it might come from someone who could sit in between those two poles and somehow conquer the decaying center. I mean, I don't think that's impossible. And I'm interested in and appreciate portions of the left for precisely that reason. I think the challenge in the States, which is a bit different from the challenge in Europe, um, is in part one of race and ethnicity and racial division of the kind we're seeing manifest right now. So if you imagined a sort of socially conservative, economically populist movement that started on the right 
and sort of created a new center. For that to work in the States, you know, there would be a few crunchy left-wing intellectuals or, you know, labor-friendly left-wing intellectuals who might like the movement. But functionally, you would need to draw support from the Black and Hispanic middle class. Those are the actual voters who would be closer to that kind of populism who are currently in the Democratic coalition. And there, that's where I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard not impossible. Even Trump himself has won a few more minority votes than people expected, but it's a very hard bridge. It's a very hard bridge to build given racial history and racial polarization unless, in the US. Unless the leader came from one of those groups, perhaps. You know, you, you certainly observe in the UK that the, mo the, the communities which are most religious and are most socially conservative, if there, if there is anything called social conservatism left in the UK, it is in the immigrant communities. Yes. Um, you know, and I don't know to what extent that's true in the US, but that's a sort of fault line that, that could provide right. interesting. Yes, I think I think a a Hispanic conservative or a African American conservative who was heterodox, there's sort of a, a niche of African American conservatives who are very conventional Republicans, um, but a more heterodox African American conservative could be a potential figure along those lines. Mm. But it's just, you know, I think in the whole Trump era and all of the controversies thereof, you can see the pull of something more like white identity politics on the American right. And that's hard to overcome. And yeah, I mean, American conservatives also used to win um, Asian voters, Asian American voters, and they even used to win Muslim American voters. George W. Bush did very well with Muslim Americans in the year 2000. And the combination of um, you know, the sort of retreat of conservatism into, into, into rural enclaves, 9-11 and the war on terror, all of that has made, um, made that kind of outreach harder. Uh, I, I read Patrick Deneen's review of your book. He was sort of gently critiquing the, the sense he had that you end the book on a sort of expansive idea that we might have to go back into space or expand in order to regain a sense of vitality and cultural purpose. And he argued that the kind of conservative spirit is one where the decadence and decline is baked in and that one should be constantly trying to slow it down and preserve whatever you've got that is good. Do you think he, w he was right in any sense? You know, I, I have this line that I've used many times, right, that everybody enters, enter, everyone in American conservatism either enters the right through Ayn Rand or J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> And I certainly entered through Tolkien. I have a very strong sort of pastoralist, anti-modern streak. Um, but I think in this book, I, my, my views have evolved somewhat in the sense that I think that, that that is not enough to deal with the society that we have right now that sort of depends on dynamism for, you know, for its future. We've we just gone through Brexit. With, um, well, we're kind of still going through Brexit, which has been... Right very decadent feeling and, and sort of stultifying. But it did, but it did happen. It did, it did you know, happen. It, it happened, yeah. It's still possible that there's a kind of creative uh, jolt from being a kind of fully independent country again um, that might might counter that decadent feeling. So I wonder whether, you know, if, if that kind of thing, decentralization of nations happens, um, maybe you could even see in the United States, if they can't, if they can't agree on a federal government, um, you'll see more and more things kind of devolve to groups of states. We already saw that in um, the response to the pandemic. You know, they're so different. Um, maybe the, the, the way that th things become more interesting again is that 
people sort of politics just flows in an organized way away from the center and downwards. Is yes, I know. I, I think that's totally possible. But I think in the U.S. context, especially, you would need to sort of push as well as pull. In effect, you would need a revolution from above as well as from below, because the expanse of the United States central government is such that it's very hard to imagine Texas or California somehow just disentangling on their own. And also, I mean, the other problem is that this gets into sort of media questions, right? All of our technologies over the last 20 years have pushed us towards the center in the sense that the internet has destroyed, again, more in the American context than elsewhere, but destroyed the local newspaper, destroyed the mid-sized city's daily newspaper, and concentrated everyone's attention on the sort of cultural and political center of the country. So there's more journalism about Washington, D.C. than ever before, and less journalism about state capitals. And so there, too, you would need, need some kind of mass movement, almost, that I think would have to happen because so much has been pushed to the center you need something to happen at the center i mean you know even in the case of brexit right like like you need boris johnson to make decisions in the city of london yeah. that um that then enable decentralization to the north of england it doesn't seem like the north of england has the capacity to you know go full um Ra raven king on its own or yeah, something I right I think that's gonna happen yes yeah, so you, you need a central power that kind of encourages more localism in some in some way um, oh, you need battles at the center yes probably we've nearly out of time i want to just take you into one new zone before before i let you carry on with your afternoon the response to the pandemic we are called lockdown tv it would be remiss if i did not mention it um, what has been so interesting is how it's divided um, sort of intellectual groups. So I guess that on, in the British context, kind of conservatives of the kind you're describing have been very divided as to whether um, a kind of strong um, lockdown response was actually a virtuous thing of showing the power of the nation state and we were going to rediscover our local communities and everyone was going to you know, be friends with their neighbours again. And in a sense, it was a sort of post-liberal idyll to be in a state of lockdown. And, and pretty much the other half found it a total affront, sort of totalitarian affront to all, everything that's good and beautiful and true about life. Uh, where did you fall? What kind of instincts did you find you had when, when those kind of measures came out? I was closer to the former view in the sense that I was for lockdowns and for strong government responses, not just sort of voluntary social distancing. Um, but sort of in keeping with my mild skepticism of pastoralism, I viewed the lockdowns as a means to actually um, defeating the disease. I thought the undecadent thing to do would be to do what apparently South Korea and New Zealand and you know, to some extent, maybe some countries in Eastern Europe have managed to do, which is actually suppress the pandemic so that not that many people die from it and you can sort of have a victory <laughs> over the disease. Um, and in the event, I think that in America, um, that I, I think, I mean, I would say that our decadence was sufficiently advanced that that was not going to be possible, that there was a combination of state incapacity, right? The inability of our Centers for Disease Control to get out ahead of the virus, the inability of the Trump administration to come up with any kind of coherent national plan, um, joined to a sort of very American kind of libertarian resistance to, um, to impositions by the state. And so we had less of a lockdown 
um, in most cases than you had in the UK or in, or in France or Italy, I think. But then the people in charge of the lockdown couldn't figure out what to do next. So it got extended sort of too long. Like the goal of the lockdown was to create space for East Asian style, you know, universal masking, test and trace, maybe some kind of quarantine. That has not happened. And so we have a lockdown that was sort of dying a slow death without having achieved most of its goals that now with the protests, now liberalism and the left has given up on the lockdown. Um, so, the, I mean, the people who were who had been the strongest in favor of it in our politics have now abandoned it in the name of it was a new, a new and more pressing. Yeah, a, a sort of a sense. I mean, if you zoomed out to a sufficient distance, you would say that this is the, the religious element in the um, police brutality protest, that this is sort of there's a sense that almost that the pandemic is our punishment for the sins of racism. And so these protests are a kind of expiation in the hope that God lifts the pandemic off us. Now, nobody's actually thinking that way. I'm just saying you could you could view it that way. But anyway, the end result is that America has ended up doing, you know, we've we've saved a certain number of lives. We've avoided the worst case scenario. And now we're just going to live with tens of thousands more fatalities, probably, as we limp to either vaccine or herd immunity. And that, that, that does seem decadent to me in the end. I guess, uh, to me, this, this sounds like the, the progressive idealist that uh, obviously there's still a spark of in you because you know, to, for, for a government to conquer nature in that way right. is quite, uh, quite, a, quite an ask. You know, we've been interviewing a bunch of scientists who are less convinced that these government interventions have actually been the thing that caused the difference. And there may be other explanations and uh, I've noticed actually that the sort of more typically later life scientists or more soft small c conservative scientists tend to take a more fatalistic view in that one you know you can't you'll never keep a virus out you'll never suppress it therefore one has to manage it and that seems like the sort of temperamentally small c conservative response um yes to some extent I, I think that I have picked up I don't think it's so much a spark I think it's something that I've added with time that I've I've gained more of a sort of appreciation for the Americanism of the World War II atom bomb space age era when there was a sense that yeah that sort of human beings with some combination of public and private effort could could do great things but I also do think you know every context is different and the U.S. is obviously not in the position that South Korea was, and we're not an island like like New Zealand or Australia. But you do have lots of places around the globe that do seem to have suppressed the disease. And some of that is accident, some of it's climate, some of it's totally mysterious things beyond our ken. Um, but I don't think it was an entirely unreasonable aspiration. Um, and I'm sorry, you know, and lots and lots of people are dead because we seem to have failed. Russ? We are out of time. This is <laughs> On a, that cheerful, that cheerful a, note. I was hoping in a cheerful might, conversation. <laughs> I was hoping we might come to uh, some some moment of uh, expansive hope at the end there, but um, we definitely. I feel like there there were definitely moments during our conversation where we felt that there was hope, light at the end of the tunnel. Did you did you feel that as well? <laughs> yes. Started out talking about the pessimism of my analysis, but I do think it is strangely a hopeful book in the sense that. You know, as long as decadence doesn't give way to catastrophe, there's hope that we get a renaissance without the intervening, without the intervening dark age or disaster. And that's that's, I think, something worth being hopeful and optimistic about and working towards. There we go. 
Nailed. Here we go. Optimism. Thank you, Ross. That Good was old American can do. <laughs> All right. right. Uh, Thank have you. a great afternoon. Um, that was Ross Douthat, the uh, columnist at the New York Times, um, who has just been talking us through everything from uh, the future of the world and space right down to the protests that are happening today. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back tomorrow.